I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare anyone? Hi, listeners. Elise here to remind you of all the ways you can support the podcast and the work that Courtney and I do. First up, we have a Patreon. Our Patreon patrons receive exclusive bonus content. Every month, we do a roundup of Shakespeare-related content we have found online. We also share Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes of the podcast. These look like extended versions of episodes you've heard here, collaborations with other Shakespeare podcasters, and Courtney and I doing reviews of Shakespeare-adjacent media, like TV shows, movies, and books that are inspired by or loosely based on Shakespeare and Shakespeare plays. Patreon patrons also receive snail mail from the podcast, and some levels even vote on future episodes of our podcast. If you are interested in checking out our Patreon or just the Shakespeare-related names we've given the tiers of support, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link is also in our episode description. After you've done that, please rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertising. Thank you so much for all of the support you give the podcast. Now, on to the episode. Welcome to another Shakespeare Anyone mini-episode. In these mini-episodes, we'll be exploring topics that are related to Shakespeare, but aren't necessarily connected to whatever play we've been discussing. And they're mini because, well, they're shorter than our other episodes. They're like Bordos if the regular episodes are folio editions. In today's Thanksgiving mini-episode, we'll be discussing post-colonial theory in Shakespeare, this episode is a continuation of our intro to postcolonial theory, this time focusing on the decolonize the mind movement from writers of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s who adapted and appropriated Shakespeare's texts for their liberation. And, as Courtney continues writing these episodes, she acknowledges that the study of postcolonial theory in Shakespeare is so vast that we still need to cover this topic as a miniseries. Subsequent episodes will discuss the colonization of Ireland, anti-Semitism in The Merchant of Venice, racism in Othello, the aftermath of colonialism, and of course, post-colonial performance, past and present. In addition to our mini-series, we will dive deeper into this topic during our The Tempest, Othello, and Merchant of Venice series, respectively. The reason we are releasing this episode on Thanksgiving is because we believe in deconstructing and decolonizing our readings of, as we said in our trailer, this old white dude William Shakespeare. Art is not created in a vacuum. People create the art we consume for a reason. 
So let's re-examine the Renaissance man through colonialism. We also want to acknowledge Jyotsna G. Singh's 2019 book, Shakespeare and Postcolonial Theory, published by Arden Shakespeare, as our primary source today, as well as Samar Al-Saber's 2016 article, Beyond Colonial Tropes, two productions of A Midsummer Night's Dream in Palestine. And, as we will be discussing colonialism, we will cover topics that may be triggering for some people. Please listen with care. But first, here is a quick refresher. During Thanksgiving 2021, we discussed the colonial imagination. To sum up that mini-episode, early modern England's colonial imagination was a result of trade and sea exploration made possible by an emerging British empire. While Shakespeare didn't participate in proto-colonial activities directly, he and his plays might have been influenced by the travel writers who were documenting their travels as well as the people they encountered abroad. Last Thanksgiving, we discussed how mercantilism complicated early modern identity by labeling foreigners and immigrants, quote-unquote, others, while also consuming their material culture. In addition to the material, a post-colonial lens allows us to imagine Shakespearean audiences as cosmopolitan and worldly, enjoying imaginings, good or bad, about Africans, Middle Easterners, and Indians. Go back and listen if you haven't already. So, now that we've covered our bases, let's dive in. According to Singh, a key imperative of post-colonial theory is to question and reinvent the way in which a culture or society is represented, especially within the histories of colonialism. And we see this interrogation as we move away from the early modern period and leap all the way to the decolonization movements of the mid-20th century. Decolonization writers dismantled and reassembled the Shakespearean text in radical ways, and we'll explore some of those key works. It's important to note that, during this era, post-colonial theory had not emerged in intellectual spaces. Wait until 1978. So we will discuss works that, quote-unquote, decolonized the mind, using Shakespeare's The Tempest. First, Let's begin with Aimé Césaire's 1969 play Une Tempête, or A Tempest. Césaire was born in 1913 on the Caribbean island Martinique, a French island colony. He was French-educated and, after living in Paris, began to radically interrogate European civilization and its claims to superiority. Césaire coined the term negritude as an ideological response to the, quote, Colonial Situation, a Psychological and Cultural Search for a Black, Pan-African Identity Untainted by Colonial Domination, unquote. This concept was the rallying cry for a liberated Black identity and is evident in A Tempest. In Césaire's adaptation, Prospero is a white master, Ariel is a mulatto slave, and Caliban is a Black slave. The text is reclaimed by multiple contexts, including contemporary Caribbean history, African Yoruba mythology, and the African-American experience. We can see this idea played out through Ariel's and Caliban's tensions between revolutionary and assimilationist drives by the colonized, as well as Cesar's Prospero remaining on the island to display colonization's long-lasting effects. One aspect to Cesar's play is the dynamic between Caliban's resistance to colonization while Prospero claims that he has civilized the quote-unquote cannibal 
with language and knowledge. Caliban specifically describes the theft of his identity, quote, like a man without a name, or, to be more precise, a man whose name has been stolen. You talk about history. Well, that's history. Every time you summon me, it reminds me of a basic fact, the fact that you've stolen everything from me, even my identity, unquote. Barbadian author George Lamming similarly draws from the Caliban-Prospero relationship in his 1960 extended biographical meditation, The Pleasures of Exile. Through Shakespeare's The Tempest, Lamming describes the legacy of colonialism in shaping the West Indian man. His appropriation of Shakespeare's text is a reading of his life as a black man and the historical forces that shaped him. Lamming writes of the dynamic of the colonizer colonized, quote, Caliban is his, Prospero's, convert, colonized by language and excluded by language. Yet Prospero is also afraid of Caliban. He is afraid because he knows his encounter with Caliban is largely an encounter with himself. Caliban plots murder against Prospero, not in hatred and not in fear, but out of a deep sense of betrayal, unquote. Lamming also writes of Caliban's multiple positions as a child of nature who is also, in the colonial economy, a slave. Quote, A slave is a project, a source of energy, organized in order to exploit nature. Unquote. Lamming, a writer of mixed Afro-English parentage, considers himself both a descendant of slaves and a descender of Prospero. Singh argues that Lamming's deeply personal appropriation of the Tempest offers us an apt analog for the processes of dialogic postcolonial rereadings. Caliban is such a popular response to colonialism that our next figure wrote his iconic 1971 post-Cuban manifesto after the character himself. Cuban writer and political figure Roberto Fernandez Retamar turned the quote-unquote savage into a metaphor for revolutionary potential. While some responses to Cuban liberation valorized Ariel as a native intellectual, Retamar argued, quote, our symbol, then, is not with Ariel, but rather Caliban, unquote. He continues, quote, This is something that we, the mestizo inhabitants of these same isles where Caliban lived, see with particular clarity. Prospero invaded the islands, killed our ancestors, enslaved Caliban, and taught him his language to make himself understood. What can Caliban do but use that same language? Today he has no other. To curse him. What is our history? What is our culture, if not the history and culture of Caliban? Unquote. In the same year that Retamar and Césaire's works were published, the Barbadian poet E.P. Kamal Brathwaite published a poem, Caliban, in his book of poems, Islands. Caliban is influenced by the orality, performance, and popular traditions of the West Indies and Africa, since Brathwaite interpreted Caliban as a Caribbean slave from Africa in the New World. The poem also recounts three historical dates, December 2, 1956, August 1, 1838, and October 12, 1492. These dates correspond to the beginning of the Cuban Revolution, the abolition of slavery in the English-speaking Caribbean, and Christopher Columbus's first voyage. The dates are presented in reverse chronology so that the reader-slash-listener experiences the upheavals in a backwards order. One final appropriation of the Tempest emerges from Kenyan writer and revolutionary 
Gugiwa Tiango's 1967 A Grain of Wheat. Gugi's novel is set in the wake of the indigenous Mau Mau Rebellion and on the cusp of Kenya's independence from Britain. Rather than center on Caliban, Gugi transports a Prospero-like colonial functionary to Kenya under British rule. Named John Thompson, this Prospero plans to write a book about Kenya called Prospero in Africa that embodies Western imperialism. Thompson's idealism for a, quote, British nation embracing peoples of all colors and creeds, unquote, leads him to impose on the Kenyan Mau Mau independence movement, head a concentration camp that interned resistance figures, and even be implicated in 11 deaths. Much like the British response to the historic Mau Mau rebellion, Gugi's Thompson justifies his behavior in Kenya by relying on the colonial binary of civilization and barbarism, quote, Mau Mau is evil, a movement which, if not checked, will mean complete destruction of all the values on which our civilization has thriven. Unquote. These five appropriations of Shakespeare's The Tempest were certainly pivotal anti-colonial works that elevated, decolonized the mind as a form of resistance. However, the paradigm shifted following Edward Said's 1978 book, Orientalism. Said, a Palestinian-American academic and literary critic, was intent on, quote, unmasking the making and operation of colonial discourses, unquote, which requires recognizing the rhetorical power of language and culture. Said wrote, quote, culture is to be found operating within civil society, where the influence of ideas, of institutions, and of other persons works not through domination, but by certain cultural forms that predominate others. Post-colonial theory participates in a discursive and intellectual shift under the rubric of critical theory, including historicism, cultural materialism, critical race studies, feminism, and also Shakespeare studies. These shifts in Shakespeare studies include examining Western imperialism's legacy, representations of race, ethnicity, and otherness, as well as Englishness and or whiteness. Now, we are running out of time to discuss specific post-colonial readings, so we will save those for next year. However, before we go, we want to discuss one Palestinian Shakespeare performance that is incredibly relevant to our current historical moment. Before that, we want to acknowledge that, as of this episode's launch, Israel is committing war crimes on Gaza. This is a hot-button topic but we at Shakespeare Anyone Podcast stand with Palestine, and we invite our listeners to join us in learning about the history of Palestine, the colonial project of Israel, and the apartheid conditions of modern-day Palestine. We have a few recommendations that we think are useful, and you can find those in the episode description. Here are a few. For starters, we recommend reading The Hundred Years' War on Palestine by Rashid Khalidi. If you'd prefer to watch something, we recommend The Empire Files, Gaza Fights for Freedom, or any Empire Files media. You can also check out the additional books, documentaries, articles, and podcast episodes linked in the episode description. In addition, follow and support Palestinian journalists, activists, organizers, writers, artists, and any other public-facing figures speaking out online. We have linked some figures, as well as active organizations you can work with, in the episode description. So, now that we're here, 
How does Shakespeare intersect with Palestine? Western theater in Palestine was influenced by missionary schools that opened during the Ottoman and British Mandate periods of 1920 to 48, and those years heavily emphasized Shakespeare in school curricula and on stage. According to Palestinian director Samar al-Saber, the continuing pattern makes it interesting to ask, quote, how do contemporary productions of Shakespearean plays in Palestine work to differentiate themselves from the so-called universal Shakespeare and its history as an ideological tool of empire? Unquote. Al-Saber was able to turn that question into an answer. In 2011, the Al-Qadzba Theater Academy in Ramallah partnered with Folkvang University, and the program's goals reflect a desire to seek students who wish to affect social change and impact Palestinian society. When Folkvang hosted its Shakespeare Festival, an international exchange with its partner universities, Al-Sabra was presented with an opportunity as a director to look for an alternative, consciously post-colonial approach to producing A Midsummer Night's Dream in Palestine. Al-Saber pointedly wrote in the production's program notes, quote, Shakespeare's work is not universal, unquote. He pondered, quote, If the starting point for this production were a group of Palestinian acting students in a nation under occupation, what might the production look like, unquote. He goes on, quote, We start from the mess, an ugly apartheid wall, epistemological destruction, psychological damage, and social disintegration. From mess, confusion, rubble, and forced illusion, we built, unquote. Finally, he concludes, quote, From Palestine, our starting point, we launched into self-discovery and revelation, unquote. At first, the outside-inside tension between everyday Palestinian life under occupation and the freedom of theater affected rehearsals. So, company-building exercises and open discussions were incorporated to foster a culture of conflict resolution. For example, the actors improvised personal stories of everyday life, or quote-unquote Palestinian moments, and brought in photographs, props, and music for their characters. Through this work, rehearsals transformed to a quote decolonized democratic creative space, unquote, for the actors. This state of chaos and disarray informed the remainder of the rehearsal process, and the play's production concept emerged from the actors' understanding of the play and their locale in Palestine. In addition, Ibrahim Mosein, director of the Academy, suggested that ropes would be props to build abstract trees. The actors worked with them like a group of circus performers, and that became the set. Some rehearsals included choreographer Petra Barguti and site-specific rehearsals to run the play in the forest. The final production was, quote, a mixture of the inescapable English origins of the play, Palestinian moments, a Shakespearean plot, found objects and bodies of Palestinian youth constantly between the outside occupation and the inside freedoms within the academy, unquote. Actors began the play preparing for performance. Some characters spoke in street vernacular, some dressed traditionally, others not. And one pointedly political choice was when Tom Snout played the wall, wearing a jalabiyah printed with the image of the Israeli wall near the Kalandia checkpoint. That's all the time we have today. So, to sum up this episode, Shakespeare is a double-edged sword. He is a tool for both imperialism and liberation. To put him into one category over the other 
is an incomplete look at Shakespeare as an open-source text. And we aren't offering any tips for celebrating Thanksgiving this year. Instead, we want to motivate everyone to get in the streets for Palestine or support however you can. As Amelia says in Othello, quote, I know a lady in Venice would have walked barefoot to Palestine for a touch of his nether lip, unquote. Thank you for listening to this episode. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone? Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash Shakespeare Anyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's Shakespeare any and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Macbeth, Act 1, Scene 3, said by Third Witch, A drum, a drum, Macbeth doth come.